Hello there, Dr Neil Buttery here, food historian and chef. Welcome to the British Food History Podcast. In today's episode, I'm talking to Ian Anderson, who's written a fantastic book published by the History Press called The History and Natural History of Spices. Before we begin, a little bit of news, and that is that the date, topic and speakers for the Leeds Symposium on Food History and Traditions have been announced. They were announced earlier this week. The 2024 symposium will be held on the 27th of April at the Friends Meeting House, Friargate, York, not Leeds. And the subject this year will be presenting the food of the past in museums and historic houses. And there's a link to the Eventbrite page in the show notes if you're interested in attending this year. This year's speakers are friend of the show, Mark Meltonville. There's Jenny Cousins of the Museum of Food down in Stowe Market. And there's Peter Breers, David Everly, and some bloke called Neil Buttery. Please don't forget, there's a postbag edition coming at the end of this season. So any questions or comments or queries about this episode, or any episode so far, greatly received. So please get in contact. Email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or leave a comment beneath a post or send me a DM on social media. At Twitter and Blue Sky, I'm at Neil Buttery. And Instagram and Threads, I'm Dr, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Or post in the British Food History Facebook discussion page. That's at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. Also, if you can, please leave a rating, follow or write a review about the podcast wherever you get your podcast. That way more people will discover it. Plus, if you can, tell your friends and family as well. Word of mouth is also very important. And if you want to support the upkeep of the podcast and blogs by donating a virtual coffee or pint, please visit the website britishfoodhistory.com and go to the support the blog and podcast tab. There you can become a £3 monthly subscriber where you'll get access to premium blog content, a monthly newsletter and my Easter eggs. There's also a whole extra episodes just for subscribers, as well as a mini-season about forgotten foods. There's one Easter egg associated with this week's episode, but I'll tell you about that at the end. Let's get started. Ian Anderson is a geologist and historian and has written The History and Natural History of Spices. It's a global history, and even though this podcast focuses on British food, we still have to look globally. In our discussion, we look at spices in prehistory and during the Roman occupation of Britain. We also discuss what spice is. The definition changes through time and includes spices derived from animals as well as plants. We also look at black pepper, the Portuguese spice trade, sugar as a spice, mustard and Thomas More's head, amongst many other things. So, here we go. Spices with Ian Anderson. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. It's very nice to get the chance to speak to you. Well, thanks very much for inviting me onto the podcast, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. I read your book, well, probably two or three months ago now. It's in my very hand. Here it is. It's a huge, sprawling topic, the history of spices. I mean, the first example of globalisation, probably, with, with spices. It's such an achievement, all the history, the botany, the geography. And I loved it because I got a chance to learn about so many spices that I'd 
never even heard of. You know, and I thought I, I thought I knew these things. It turns out <laughs> there's huge gaps in my knowledge. But I guess the first question is, is what was your inspiration in writing such a complex complex book in the first place? Well, I think um, combination of factors actually. First of all, um, long-standing love of spicy food, strong interest in history, and being fortunate to have lived and worked in Southeast Asia for over 25 years, where I could immerse myself in the delicious Asian cuisine, exotic spices, and visit colourful and exotic fresh markets. So you've spent a lot of time in, in Asia, and I guess you don't work in Asia anymore? You got kind of more based in the UK? I came back in 2018, so I've been based in the UK since that time. But uh, yeah, it was my work in uh, geology. I'm a, I'm a geologist, not a historian. Oh, okay. <laughs> Although there is, uh, in, in some senses, there are similarities between geology and history in a tenuous sense, and that uh, we both look at, both disciplines look at and interpret past events, while geologists perhaps look at timescales typically measured in millions or even billions of years, but mm. historians in hundreds or thousands. So there's a somewhat tenuous connection there. But anyway, it was my work in geology that took me to Indonesia and later to Thailand, which, as you know, each have very distinctive cuisines mm. and the use of spices is very important to each of them. Well, let's talk about botanists briefly. There's lots of botanists who have been important in history, but I was wondering if any leap out as, you know, from the point of view of British history, or maybe not botanists, maybe physicians or geographers, of course, they were important too when it comes to spices. Yeah, yeah. I wrote this chapter on the sort of pioneers, as it were, mm. insofar as they affect herbs and spices. Um, in fact, the earliest pioneers in these fields were not British. Um, in the West, they were typically Greek. Uh, for example, Hippocrates uh, and Theophrastus, the former being the father of medicine, the uh, the latter father of botany, or, or Roman examples being Celsus, Pliny, and Dioscorides. But in the East, they were Indian or Chinese. And I think the influential uh, British pioneers, as far as they affect herbs and spices, they came later. I mean, we could cite the Venerable Bede, the 7th to 8th century monk and prolific writers being representative of Anglo-Saxon monasteries, which produced historical and scientific works as well as theology. But then later, John Gerard and Nicholas Culpepper, mm. who were both botanists and herbalists of the 16th and 17th centuries. Yes, Culpepper is the one that crops up the most. Whenever you're reading um, any sort of history of food and, and spices or herbs crop up, it's Culpepper that usually the author has gone to, to get a quote. <laughs> The Venerable Bede's interesting, isn't it? Because you mentioned it a couple of times in the book, and I came across this too when I was researching my book on sugar, was that um, when he died, he had a little pouch of spices, didn't he, of various types. And one of them was sugar. I can't remember what the other ones were. <laughs> yeah, quite a few, actually. And he bequeathed them to his brethren when he passed away. That's right. Well, uh, well, I should ask at this point, really, we've been mentioning spices, and it's one of those questions where it sounds like an easy answer, but I'm going to ask it. And it might not be an easy answer. What is a spice? <laughs> yeah, I get asked this question a lot. Uh, well, it's not a botanical term for a start, but I think a, a reasonable modern definition would be the usually dried parts of usually aromatic plants used to season or flavour food. And I'm 
especially talking about the non-herby parts like the seeds, uh, uh, fruits, roots, bark, flowers, and so on. Mm. But in the past, the definition was a lot broader. So spices were originally typically used as medicines, but also in many, many other ways. For example, incense, examples there being myrrh and frankincense, perfumes, intoxicants and stimulants, uh, a couple of examples would be the opium poppy and even cannabis. Of course, yeah, yeah. Um, in cosmetics. And then there's a quirky category of animal-derived products. Yes. <laughs> like um, musk and ambergris, which were both sought after for uh, the perfume industry. But in Victorian times, uh, they were used almost inter- interchangeably in cooking as well. Mm, I've seen shortbread recipes recently, actually, with a bit of uh, ambergris in them for flavour. Yeah, ambergris <laughs> is one of these yucky things. It comes from the digestive tract of the sperm whale, mm. and it's pretty uh, unpleasant in smell when it's first ejected. But after a couple of years of bobbing around in the sea, it develops this sweet and rich aroma, and it's uh, quite sought after and very expensive. Oh, so it sits there, bobbing around, slowly curing. And it or washes, finally washes up on a beach somewhere, and somebody finds it and makes a lot of money. Out of it. I don't think I've ever tried anything with musk or smell anything with musk or ambergris. I imagine it to smell something like, you know, when your dog rolls in some fox poo, <laughs> that really sort of weirdly very smelly. But slightly aromatic, strange smell. That's, that's kind of what I think of when I think of maybe what they smell like. Have, have you had a, ever had a chance to uh, have a <laughs> there's go? A, there's, a, there's another uh, on the same court, same kind of vein. There's another one uh, from Thailand and Southeast Asia in general, which is a giant water beetle. In Thai, they call it the Meng Da, and you see it on all these uh, street stalls all around Thailand. These huge beetles, they're very popular, in particularly in northeast Thailand. They hmm. crush them up and mix them with other spices into a spice paste called Namprik Mengda. Um, it's not to my taste, I hasten to add. Hmm. But spices were, you know, spices were also used um, as colorants for food, um, clothing, skin and hair. In, in medieval times, food coloring was a big deal. So saffron and turmeric were used for yellow, alkanet for red, turnosol for blue, rose petals for pink, and so on. So I suppose you could say um, in that, that context, something like cochineal's a spice then, couldn't you? you know, going back to our animal examples. Absolutely, you could say mm-hmm. that, yeah. Yeah, and lots of things like um, sandalwood, was sandalwood saunders for yellow sandalwood, as well? Yeah. Sandalwood mm-hmm. was used in cosmetics, that's right. Sugar, as, as, so you've got spices of sweeteners, sugars, preservatives magic spells and incantations, and then there's aphrodisiacs, a long list of spices. I mean, what isn't an aphrodisiac? Yeah, no, I know. (laughs) If it's expensive, it's an aphrodisiac. I think that's a good rule of thumb. Get people to buy it. (laughs) And the final one, of course, seasoning food. But on the preservatives uh, thing, there's, there's an interesting little story about Sir Thomas More's head. You might well know that Sir Thomas More was Henry VIII's Lord High Chancellor, but he didn't agree to the oath of supremacy. He didn't want Henry to become the head of the church. Yes. He didn't agree to his marriage to Anne Boleyn, so he was beheaded. And after that, his head was placed on a spike on London Bridge where it stayed there for a month. 
But after a month, his daughter, Margaret Roper, rescued the head and preserved it in spices. Right. A little spice rub. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> the head is, is now in the Roper family tomb in St Dunstan's Church in Canterbury. But the rest of poor old Thomas is still in the Tower of London. Oh, I don't know what spices they used to preserve it. Must have been pretty sweet if his head had been there on a stick on a stick for a month or so. Yeah, because I mean, there's that myth, isn't there, about people um, using all these spices to to cover up the the smell or taste of rotten meat, which is definitely not true. However, oh, no, it's, a kind it's... of exception. <laughs> yeah, Thomas More. <laughs> the other thing is that spices also were. And this is sort of dates from medieval or, or earlier times that spices were also defined as something truly special or exotic and typically, therefore, imported. They were costly and extravagant luxuries. They were sold in small quantities and they all had to be blessed with marvellous properties. It gave them that something special um, that set them outside of the range of normal normally traded goods. I think that's a very important part of the sort of philosophy of medieval spices. The example that I always that always springs to mind talking about that is the all the sort of myth made up myths around cinnamon, cinnamon sticks. Oh absolutely, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you used uh, yeah, that dates back to the times of Herodotus who uh, described the Arabians um, apparently sourcing cinnamon from the nests of these giant birds. They use the cinnamon sticks to make these nests. And in order to get the nests and the cinnamon, the Arabians cut up massive chunks of meat and the birds would fly down, pick up these meat, lumps of meat and bring them back up to their nest where the sheer weight of the meat would cause the nest to collapse. And, and the Arabians would pick up the sticks from the ground. But if you believe that, you believe anything. <laughs> It's hard to begin, really, with the history. One thing that really struck me, actually, in the book was that you, you begin right at the Bronze Age. <laughs> yeah. You know, you think of it, well, I, I, one thinks of it as more of a, I don't know, a medieval thing, at least when it's uh, significant. So I was really surprised to see how far back it was going. Of course, it wasn't getting to uh, the British Isles in, in the Bronze Age, I don't think, was it? But I guess it was moving more around Asia and Eastern Europe. Uh, yeah, well, the evidence for very early spices goes goes back, as you say, a very long way indeed, and certainly as far back as the Neolithic, in fact. Right. Examples being uh, mustard in Iran, almost 10,000 BC. Sugar was cultivated in New Guinea. Of course, uh, yes. From 8,000 BC, and chili remains have been found in Mexico from similar sort of time frames. But some remains are even older than that. There's been uh, yarrow and other medicinal plants found in Neanderthal grave in Iraq that dates to 65,000 years, which takes us back to the Paleolithic. Blimey. But I didn't realise that's crazy. Yeah, so way, other... way back in history. Yeah, other species of hominids were uh, enjoying spices too. I kind of like that. It's funny, isn't it? When, when you get into history, especially with food, it's at first you focus on the, the differences, the, the weird differences, but after a while you get over that and the things that always stand out to me are the similarities they're always more amazing and it's, it's nice to know there's some continuous threads going far back as things like that yeah yeah absolutely uh, i think also you know that uh, the roman period is very important it's fair to say that the first imported spices to britain came over with the romans and they introduced about 50 
species of fruit, veg, and herbs. They include quite a long list of well-known herbs and spices like mustard, Mm. dill, fennel, anise, parsley, celery, mint, and so on. You know, so there's a really very long list, and many of these became naturalised and now grow quite happily here. Mustard is probably one that um, people think of as particularly, well, actually not British, particularly English. And I assumed, you see, again, wrongly, you, you assume a lot, don't you? And you read about something, you realise you're completely wrong. I just thought that mustard was actually, that uh, was naturally occurring in Britain. And, that, and that's why it was so popular, so part of our culture. But I'm surprised that it was brought over by the Romans. I thought it was one of the few in, indigenous spices that maybe that we had, but no. Yeah, well, certainly mustard has become to seem very British, maybe because of its uh, long use here, uh, and even association with Coleman's, formerly of Norwich. But it has a far longer history of use in India, and it seems to have a sort of Middle East, West Asian origin. It was actually one of the first cultivated crops. And as you probably know, the name itself is derived from the Latin mustum ardens, meaning burning wine. But yes, we do, we do tend to associate it very much with British cuisine these days. I think they quickly become sort of welcomed to the bosom of various countries and very quickly become part of the natural, uh, the, the food culture there. It's impossible to imagine Indian food or Thai food without chilies, for example. You just can't imagine that they didn't exist at one point in their food. It's so integral. Absolutely. But uh, no, chilli is very much an adopted spice. We, we tend to think chili and associate chili with asian food but it it was part of the colombian exchange and it had its origin in south and central america it only came over to uh to europe and and the rest of the world after that uh, colombian period so you know and then it spread very quickly but uh, it, it was unknown before the sort of early 16th century and i was really surprised as well, lots of surprises. How, because uh, infamously, tomatoes and potatoes were well received quite a lot of caution from from the British for several centuries. But <laughs> chilies were absolutely dived on. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> With the fiery taste, I thought if you know if anything, people would have been a bit wary of of these hot chilies. Yeah, I think I think they were more wary of potatoes actually when they they came over than they were chilies, which is quite surprising. And one of the great things about the book is is the lovely colour plates you've got in there, and I really love the the very early botanical plate of a of a chili plant that you were including there, which is very yeah, nice. yeah, that, that, that's great. That's that's uh, also also one on the cover, and that's um, yeah, dates from the mid sixteenth century German botanical painting. You mentioned the Columbian Exchange, but I suppose um, we've got to go back a few centuries uh, if we're talking about the next wave of spices coming in, a big wave of spices coming into um, into the West and into, into the UK. Or into, well, no, no such thing as the UK then. British Isles, I mean. And I suppose the first country maybe to get involved in that was the Portuguese. They're the pi- literally the pioneers, pioneers in this case. <laughs> well, spices had been coming into to Britain since the time of the Roman Empire. I think that's that's very clear, but mm. after, there was a period before the Portuguese. So after the collapse of the Roman Empire in the fifth century, the dynamics, the whole dynamics of the spice trade from east to west changed, but it didn't stop. Arab traders crossed the Indian Ocean importing spices to Alexandria 
via the Red Sea and other entrepôts via the Persian Gulf. And with the rise of the Islamic Caliphate, sourcing of the Eastern spices effectively was controlled by Muslims until the end of the 15th century, which is when the Portuguese took over. And the Italian city-states, especially Venice and Genoa, acted as middlemen and brought the spices from them and spread them across the Mediterranean and then ultimately to Britain. I think one, one interesting point, and often quoted, is the role that returning crusaders played in stimulating the demand for spices in Europe and England. They had tasted these exotic delights in their travels and conquests, and no doubt brought some of them back home. And the dates more or less fit with an upsurge in the use of spices in medieval cooking in Europe. So there may be something in it. No, I reckon so. It was it was certainly the case with sugar, so it would make perfect sense that a load of other spices came along with it. And going by the fact, of course, that all, you, you look in a medieval cookery book and you see all these various different pottages and preparations, and they seem they seem odd, but it's basically meat, bit of sugar, bit of dried fruit and spices, which is it's Middle Eastern cuisine, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you know the Portuguese were the ones who really kicked off the age of discovery, and you know think about Portugal in the 15th century. It was a small country in Western Europe that had trouble trading in the Med because of overwhelming competition there. They had Atlantic coast and maritime traditions, so it was logical for them to push south and explore the coast of Africa, which was then uncharted. So they pushed further and further south, and they found gold and some spices like grains of paradise. And slaves. Um, well, indeed, yes. Put, yeah, but, but their aim was to find a possible sea route to India, you know, the mythical India, in search for the true source of spices. And they finally did that in 1498 with Fasco da Gama. And then, amazingly, the Portuguese spread through the Eastern Hemisphere like an absolute breeze, you know, and they established trading posts and colonies. They reached the Spice Islands by 1512, I think it was, and they had huge revenues from importing nutmeg, mace, and cloves. But within a hundred and fifty years of Vasco da Gama's arrival, they'd been kicked out of most of Asia by the Dutch and the English. <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting because that was uh, it, it was their success. It was a Portuguese very success that stimulated the Brits to form the East India Company. Mm which was formed in 1600 and lasted until 1874. And at the height, of its, the height of its power in the 18th century, it accounted for half the world's trade. But, um, you know, there's, there's really not much left of its legacy in London now. No, no. Such an important organisation. You know, without the East India Company, there, there wouldn't have been much of a British Empire. Let's talk a little bit about sugar, because you mentioned the Columbian Exchange, and a lot of people think that sugar is a new world food, but of course it isn't. It was one of the various foods in the Columbian Exchange that was going to America, or the Americas. And you got a whole chapter on, on sugar, which was nice to see, because people forget that it is technically a spice. It was certainly thought of as a spice, certainly medieval, early modern period anyway. Yeah, it, uh, it definitely was regarded as a spice in medieval times and earlier, and also fits a modern definition, but it's it's never thought of a spice now. In fact, it originated in New Guinea and spread westwards, first through India and then 
and then progressively through the Middle East, reaching Europe around the 9th or 10th century AD. And it was known earlier than that in the Greco-Roman world, but it wasn't commonly used, probably because it was expensive. Mm-hmm. And Strabo, uh, the Roman geographer, said of sugarcane in India, he described the reeds that yield honey, although there are no bees. Mm. Yeah, that's a great quote, isn't it? It seems to be mainly mainly known as a medicine by the Greeks, with honey and dates were the main sweeteners then. But then, you know, in, from, from sort of medieval times, it became massively popular. Elaborate sugar sculptures became a big thing in medieval times. But the ugly side of sugar, we, which we touched on, was a cane industry that was exported to the Caribbean, first by Columbus, mm-hmm. and the use of African slaves in massive numbers. Until you look at these things in detail, um, you think you've got a good idea of it, and then you realise that it's actually unimaginable, I think. Yeah, I think something like 12 million Slaves were imported from Africa to uh, man this uh, developing sugar sugar business, which largely based in the Caribbean. Mm. Um, and Portuguese, Spanish, French, Dutch, and British—they all became heavily involved in the sugar business, feeding what actually became an insatiable demand for sugar in Europe. I mean, I think about sugar quite a lot. <laughs> um, sugar we can eat in its purest form, and it really is like people purifying cocaine or something i think it's yeah. it's not that it seems to be not that different at least when it comes to our behavior because you were saying you know the the insatiable appetite and there's been studies showing that people get withdrawal from sugar just the same as they do with a drug you're right i think it's, it was addictive and um, queen elizabeth I famously had an enormous love of sugar and even brushed her teeth with a sugary paste which was not surprising, therefore, she had black and rotten teeth. But no. <laughs> she certainly was a, a massive fan of, of sugar, yeah. Yeah, people would um, do these big sugar banquets for her and things, wouldn't they? The food story Ivan Day has done some amazing reproductions of these Tudor, Tudor sugar work sculptures and sugar gloves, which are extremely realistic that he made. It's, it was really, um, again, pioneering, you know, the, the chemistry... You know, people would have had much of an idea about the chemistry of sugar, but quickly found out that you could do all this amazing stuff with it, structural stuff with it. And you mentioned the, the sugar sculptures that were used yeah. in meals, the subtlety course, where they just get wheeled in and wheeled out again just for people to, to look at. I mean, I just love it. It's so opulent and over the top, but I can't help but love it. We can't talk about spices without talking about black pepper. Right. It, it's the ubiquitous spice, I suppose. Even more ubiquitous than sugar? Hmm, not sure about that one, but certainly <laughs> certainly pretty up there. Why was pepper, do you think, just so popular? What made it stand out from the other spices? I think we've got to thank the Romans for that. It's, mm. Black pepper is a climbing vine native to India, but it's another spice that started out as a medicine. Under the Greeks, certainly it was it was only used as medicine, but it soon became adapted for culinary use under the Romans, and they developed this massive appetite for the spice. So I think one of the things was when they annexed Egypt, which was around 30 BC, they suddenly had access to the Red Sea and Indian Ocean. So by the first century AD, they were sending 120 ships a year to trade with India for all manners of goods, but especially spices, and notable amongst the spices was black pepper. 
and then from the Red Sea ports, pepper would be taken overland to the Nile and then downstream to Alexandria and distributed across the entire empire, including its coldest and most distant frontier, England. And I think there's there's a couple of points of interesting points uh, about England and pepper under the Romans. And the first one is a mention in one of the Vindolanda tablets up mm-hmm. on Hadrian's Wall. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been there, but it's on the eastern end of uh, Hadrian's Wall, not that far from Hexham. And the the tablets, I think there've been about sixteen hundred or so of these wooden, thin wooden tablets with Latin inscriptions preserved in the in the peaty soil at Vindolanda, covering all manners of subjects, military, personal letters, and so on. And one of them was from this squaddy, a soldier called Gambax, who had ordered half a pound's worth of pepper. And I like to think of him eagerly awaiting his order to arrive to help fire up his diet and the miserable cold of the northern frontier. And that is really cold. If you've been up there in the winter months, it is really bleak and cold. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you, you want some pepper. You need something. You need something. And, and the second one is the discovery in 1992 of the absolutely fabulous Hoxon Horde by ah. a metal detector in Suffolk in search of his farmer friend's lost hammer. Well, they, they found the hammer, but they also found this, this amazing hoard which contained like almost 15,000 coins, bronze, silver, and gold, 200 pieces of silver tableware, gold, jewellery, and, and also several stunningly beautiful silver gilt pepper pots. <laughs> They're they're absolutely gorgeous, and they're now in the British Museum. The coins dated the find to post 407 AD, and that was the year the Romans finally left Britain. So you you could imagine the anxiety of the owners of the hoard, who must have had the sense of impending catastrophe of burying all this treasure, if not downright panic, and. This was also a time of great instability in Rome, and the following in, following year, Rome was besieged by the Visigoth king Alaric, who was deterred from sacking the city by a bribe, which in, included lots of gold and silver, but also three thousand pounds of black pepper. Three thousand pounds. So it actually it actually deterred him from entering the city. That was good then, but two years later, he came back and sacked the city anyway, and. <laughs> Rome then lurched from crisis to crisis for the next few decades until it finally collapsed. And that was the end of the Roman Empire, the later part of that century. The amounts that were being traded in these early trades, I couldn't believe the tonnage of spices oh, that was yeah, being moved yeah. around was amazing because they make up a quite small a part of the biomass of a plant, usually anyway. And the fact that there's tons and tons and bushels or whatever it was being measured in, I just unbelievable. Romans were probably importing something in the order of three or four thousand tons a year of black pepper into their into the Roman Empire. It's a massive amount of pepper. Yeah, and it was—I wouldn't say it was cheap, but it was affordable to the common man. So you know, it wasn't just the elite classes that had access to it. Well, we've been talking about this tonnage of spices that were being moved around the world. Is it being essentially a, st- a steady increase in the use of spices if you look through the centuries, or is there? 
a huge number of sort of peaks and troughs and wobble as as, as you trace it. Under the Romans was a massive sort of peak because mm. of the, their very efficient import from India. Uh, but after the collapse of the Roman Empire, well, as we've seen, the, the Arabs took up the slack, but the there was probably reduced flowage of spices into Western markets. And then things picked up again, you know, in the later part of medieval times. And there's always a steady steady throughput of spices throughout medieval times. But then the next massive uh, event was the Portuguese colonial period, and that, that started huge volumes uh, of spices coming in by sea. So I think we've seen these sort of, these rises and falls of spices over the centuries. But I think another thing that we do see is a tendency for spices to have fallen from popularity in the West somewhere around the 18th century, because by that time their exclusivity had been kind of breached or cancelled. Mm. And now isolated Eastern spices were introduced to many other tropical countries where they thrived. And then there was increased transport efficiency and availability. It just made them less special compared to earlier days. And then at the same time, other new flavours came into vogue. So delicate French sauces replaced the heavily spiced dishes that were so popular in medieval times. And fresh herbs became more uh, popular than dried spices. And then we've got coffee, tea, sugar and tobacco becoming more profitable to the companies and countries that were exporting them. And, the, and companies that had previously focused on the spice trade. So we do see a bit of a decline in use in from the 18th century onwards. Hannah Glass's book, The Art of Cookery in 1747, reflects that with a rather limited use of spices. But I think what's interesting is in the second half of the 20th century, I reckon we've seen a resurgence in the use of spices. And that's largely driven by the increased globalisation and migration that we've seen across every part of the world. So whereas my parents would probably never have eaten spicy food in their lives, I think my generation and younger would have taken it to their hearts, you know, and spices have never been as available as they are now. Yes, it's nice to see fresh spices, I suppose, for the first time. Fresh ginger, you know, you see uh, 19th century recipes for various curry powders and everything in it is dry all the spices anyway are dried and now of course you can use up fresh gangal and ginger and things like that i'm lucky to live in south manchester with a, a large south asian population so there's some fantastic shops and stores around where you can get amazingly fresh spices you know methy leaves and things that you couldn't get hold of 20 years ago i just you know in, in every shop window almost now it's fantastic <laughs> absolutely yeah well i could talk to you about this whole day but i have to get let you get on with the rest of your day thank you very much for coming on the podcast it's been a pleasure speaking to you uh thank you neil it's a pleasure to be here i mean we've scraped the surface of the contents of the book and the history of spices so uh hopefully it's going to uh, enthuse people to check the book out i'm sure they will have you got any other projects coming up that uh perhaps we know about or any uh events i know you do a lot of talks and things like that the best way to keep track would be to follow my follow my Instagram account, which is ian.d.anderson. 
for updates on forthcoming talks as well as hundreds of pictures of exotic herbs and spices. Oh, fantastic. And the, the book is published by the History Press and can be bought online uh, from the publisher or, or at any bookshop. And if you want to buy a signed copy, then contact me directly via Instagram, direct message. Fantastic. Ah, oh, well, thanks again. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks again, Ian. There are links to Ian's Instagram account and to his book, The History and Natural History of Spices, on the History Press website. I've also included links to a blog post of Ivan Day's showing off his amazing sugar work and the Hocks and Pepper Pot on the British Museum website. I've also included a link to the Eventbrite page for the 2024 Leeds Food Symposium in April if you fancy attending. All right, this week's Easter egg. There's just one this week and it's about the other species of pepper that were commonly traded in the past, but are these days only available through specialist suppliers, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, it's time to go. Remember to get in touch with any comments, questions, queries, ideas for future topics. All my contact information is in the show notes. Until next time, please take care. Cheerio.